Awaken to the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the first time that I've heard that that is your motto uh, for Long Island. And uh, that is the purpose of the uh, sermon which I'm bringing you, as Mark mentioned, in two parts. I was here back on June 6th, and I introduced you uh, to this whole idea of the culture of Christ. We're going to return to that today. Uh, The culture of Christ... There is a culture of Christ that has been at work to transform the history of nations and to transform the lives of individuals. And since it's been happening since that day that God invaded human history in the person of the Messiah. Now Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom of God with these words, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And to the religious elite of his day who opposed his message, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is, is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, in the ways that you might normally expect it. Now, in Scripture... The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has two aspects. Theologians refer to these as the now and the not yet aspects of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus announced that kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, that it was being reestablished both now in our present times and not yet in its future and ultimate fulfillment at the end of time. He described the reestablishment of the kingdom of heaven as being gradual in the now and grand in the not yet, which is why we sometimes miss what's happening now and the glory of the Lord Jesus being displayed now in our present time in the ages and the history, recent history of the human race. As to the now aspect, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. That's the now aspect of the kingdom of God. As to the not yet aspect, Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So my two-part sermon this summer was intended to help us focus on evidence of the gradual now aspect of the kingdom of God and how it has transformed our current human experience over the last two millennia. Now, this requires a broad sweeping perspective of history. It is something that's not typically part of the discussion among most followers of Christ. It's something that requires an examination of the changes in human culture over 2,000 years. Uh, For these insights, I am particularly indebted to the writings of Dr. Rodney Stark a remarkable professor of history at Baylor University, and specifically to his book, The Victory of Reason, and I recommend it to you highly. 
Now, the sermon text that I chose in which to frame my points comes from the Bible's description of the final events that will close out human history at the end of time. So follow me as I read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor, any, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. O God, our Heavenly Father, by your Spirit... Open our eyes that we may be amazed at your power, your wisdom, and your tender loving kindness. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Back in June, I presented three points. First, that the culture of Christ produces great contrasts with the culture of and values which humanity holds. Second, that the culture of Christ produces real consequences in human history. And finally, that the culture of Christ should produce a radical personal change in each of us who is called to follow Jesus. The first of my three points we considered in detail. And point one was that the culture of Christ produces great contrast with the cultural value, values which humanity holds. Let me review these. Culture we may define as a collection of attitudes, feelings, values, behaviors, all which define a group, a family, a nation, city, the world. Each culture is built on what its members believe and what they think is true, and these convictions shape their actions, and coalesce into a set of customs which, when repeated generation after generation, become a culture. We considered whether cultures can be rightly compared and judged. I suggested that we can legitimately say that one cultural value is better than another cultural value. Uh, 
because the human mind we read in Scripture has been wired by our Creator to distinguish between the relative values of things and ideas. So as things and values can be judged, so can the cultures which present how we are to consider these, how we are to value them. Then we touched on some of the major choices that have defined the cultures of nature throughout human, uh, of nations throughout human history. Cultural choices of governments, such as kings and dictators versus governments under the control of elected representatives of the people. Cultural choices regarding human liberties, uh, whether cultures are better when every person is viewed as equal in worth, or do cultures accomplish something more grand when the elite class exerts totalitarian charge over a population whom they consider to be of inferior quality and worth? Where would be some of the great uh, products of these cultures without slave labor? The pyramids, the Great Wall of China, we could go on and on. And finally, the cultural choices regarding the use of resources presents this question. Should citizens submit their earnings to the government so that decision-making can be centralized? Or is it better that each person have the freedom to keep what they earn and to choose themselves how their earnings would be used or spent? These are choices made by cultures. Lastly, we observe that the culture of Christ is often the opposite of the cultures of the kingdom of this world. Now, sadly, since you and I were born citizens of this world, this means that we very naturally ourselves lean toward the culture of this world and not toward the culture of Christ. Even as Christians, we are tempted to use the world's culture to accomplish kingdom goals, always with mixed results. This brings me to the second major point, which we considered briefly last time and we'll examine more carefully today. The second of my three major points is that the culture of Christ produces real consequences in, uh, in human history. When the culture of Christ began to confront the kingdoms and cultures of this world, the world began to be transformed. Once again, we hear God declare to us, behold, I am making all things new. As we look at human history over the last two millennia since Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, we can see that God has indeed been progressively reshaping human cultures. Professor Stark's writings extensively detail how Christianity and the institutions related to Christianity are in fact directly responsible for the most significant intellectual, political, scientific, and economic breakthroughs of the past 1,000 years. These cultural transformations first took root in the West. The ruthless culture of the Roman Empire was slowly transformed by the culture of Christ. And when that empire fell in the 6th century AD and left the continent of Europe in shambles, the strongest and broadest influence over the various populations of Europe was Christianity. The cultures of China and the Islamic nations were far more advanced during the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, our modern cultural conceptions, those ideas which we hold today, concepts of human rights, economic opportunity, and even science, 
found only brief connections with the Chinese and Islamic cultures. Professor Stark points out that their cultures were built on a foundation of authoritarianism. There was no freedom for the vast majority of their people. There was no freedom to challenge the opinions and creeds of the cultural elites of their society. There was no incentive for the common man to explore the boundaries of technology and science. And so it didn't happen. Instead, he explains, it was Christianity that led to freedom, capitalism, and the Western success of the last 1,000 years. Now, last time we looked briefly at three dramatic changes that were introduced through, uh, to the world through Christianity. The supremacy of reason, the rise of individualism and free will, and the expectation of progress. The supremacy of reason first. Where Christianity is different from other world religions and belief systems is that Christianity begins with a God who wants to be known by his people and who has revealed himself to us in the Bible. So when people realized and believed that God wanted us to understand him, that's theology, they also started to recognize that we should use reason to better understand how and why his creation works. So when people began to explore creation using their reason, they looked for rationality in science, not in mystical alchemy and astrology. It was within the culture of the scholastics and the church that mankind discovered the principles of chemistry and astronomy and advanced mathematics. In economics, church-inspired reason gave rise to capitalism, since, as Stark writes, capitalism is, in essence, the systematic and sustained application of reason to commerce, something that first took place within the great monastic estates. And in the area of government, church-inspired reason brought about the modern-day development of the idea of democracy, freedom, for every individual person, not merely for the 1% of those wealthy elites who lived off the slave labor of the masses. Not only did reason gain a foothold in human culture through the spread of Christianity, but secondly, what gained a foothold was the rise of individualism and free will. It led people to understand that each individual human person has value because we have a particular special value to God who created each individual human person in his image. And as these biblical doctrines, the worth of the individual and the equality of each person before God and the right to personal freedom, as these took hold in, and took root in medieval Europe, things changed. Due to the influence of the culture of Christ, women were granted more worth and dignity. Due to the influence of the culture of Christ, Slavery in Europe ended in medieval times and was fought back again in 19th century Europe and America. Even the presumed divine right of kings fell victim to the culture of Christ. One more change that was introduced to the world's cultural mindset, the expectation of progress. The early church fathers were able to see how God carefully and progressively revealed himself to his people in the Bible. 
In the Old Testament books, he reveals himself to be a holy God who despises sin, but who loves the people whom he created in his own image and who promises to rescue them from the consequences of their sin that plagues the entire human race. The first coming of Christ into the world reintroduces the cultures of heaven to earth. The victory of Christ's resurrection from the dead secures that victory of the kingdom of God over all the world and all of its cultures. And we are promised that the victory will lead to the day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All of human progress is pointing toward that day. And so progress became a normal part of what Christians expected out of the everyday aspects of life. Those cultures, influenced by the culture of Christ, became oriented to the future, while the cultures of other religions insisted on the superiority of the past. God's plan lifted the eyes of the human race out of darkness and despair and filled us with an expectation of change and transformation into the best versions of ourselves. But not everyone in Western culture has been willing to continue to embrace all aspects of the culture of Christ. In particular, the intellectuals of 19th century Europe used their great learning to undermine Christianity in an effort to be free of the Bible's insistence on each person's individual accountability to God. They were eager to take the benefits of the blessings of the culture of Christ, but they wanted nothing to do with submission to its God. And so, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, such people suppress the truth, even though what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Instead of acknowledging God, they devoted themselves to stealing the glory of God for themselves so that they could proclaim a human-centered belief system which ascribes all glory to mankind as the pinnacle of all progress. The problem is that in order to come up with a coherent system of morality to justify their rejection of the idea of God, those who adhere to a culture of humanism have had to borrow liberally from Christianity, from the culture of Christ, in order to form a belief system more to their liking. Modern humanism is a borrowed belief system. I ask the Secular, atheistic version of humanistic belief held by most Western intellectuals today was borrowed its core beliefs from the groundbreaking principles found in the culture of Christ. Now, what kinds of moral principles have they borrowed to construct their progressive worldview that excludes God? They've tried to claim as their exclusive discovery the establishment of human rights, justice, and equality. They've tried to co-opt the scientific method, which determines facts by observation and testing theories, and anyone who disagrees with their positions is simply decried as being unscientific. 
the expectation of progress now depends entirely on the capabilities of mankind, they say. In the words of the Humanist Manifesto, man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his uh, of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. Progress, they claim, is not the gift of the culture of Christ, but a gift of progressive cultures. Continuing from the Humanist manifest Manifesto, progressive cultures have worked to free humanity from the brutalities of mere survival and to reduce suffering, improve society, and develop global community. Yet even as they claim to have derived their principles from self-evident human values, an honest assessment cannot deny that the source of these self-evident values comes right out of the Bible. They are principles that have developed nowhere else in human history. They are exclusive, the exclusive blessings of the culture of Christ announced and the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. Humanism as, humanism as a worldview and a belief structure has shown that it is unable uh, to strive toward a, uh, all of the marvelous aspirations which they show. Uh, and it is quite aspirational. Uh, again, continuing from their manifesto, Humanists long for and strive toward a world of mutual care and concern, free of cruelty and its consequences, where differences are resolved cooperatively without resorting to violence. The difficulty is that modern humanism has shown that it is unable to sustain those aspirations. The only way that atheistic belief systems have been able to bring about their cultures to bear on a nation or society is to abandon the very aspirational principles which they espouse. We see it in 20th century history. World War I devastated the hopes of the, expected, uh, the ex expectation that mankind was reaching its pinnacles. Throughout the 20th century, repeated socialist and communist experiments have all resulted in either the economic devastation of their nations or in the, rever uh, the reversion to an oppressive state government which abandons any pretense of progressive humanistic morality. Today in America, we endure the throes of a cultural war where progressives have abandoned their grand human aspirations in order to grasp power to coerce the submission of our society. It seems they've decided that the freedom of the individual can get in the way of progress. And so they revert to shame and threats so that, they, uh, so that their society can progress. Clearly, they have given up on persuasion as a humanistic value. But that begs the question, why is it that atheists and humanists uh, have been unable to see their worldview work to bring about their aspirations for all mankind. They don't have an answer. According to the Bible, 
it's because the human race has been infected by a debilitating disease of the soul. According to the Bible, we are incapable of becoming the best versions of ourselves in our own power. According to the Bible, the human soul is corrupted to the degree that it is incapable of living out the rich life for which we were created. Over and over again, through thousands of years of human experience, humanity ends up in the same place. There is a principle at work within each one of us that acts to corrupt the best of our intentions. We each need a personal transformation, but it seems we are powerless to bring that about in our own strength. The only historical evidence we have of a power strong enough to transform both individuals and entire cultures is found in the culture of Christ. This brings us to my final main point, that the culture of Christ should produce a radical personal change in the one who is called to follow Jesus. The Bible is not, as we might say, a collection of some of mankind's best thoughts about God. The Bible is the Word of God. It is a collection of his thoughts about us. It is his love letter to us. And if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then I don't need to convince you of that. But if the culture of Christ can have such a wondrous effect on human cultures, it should, should it not also be capable of a marvelous, transformative effect on your life personally? It should. And this is where it gets very personal. This is where we start, stop talking about other people and what they believe in order to focus on yourself and what you believe. Do you truly believe in the version of reality as presented in God's word? And if you do, what are you prepared to do about it? Let me give you a personal example of how God used his word and his Holy Spirit to change a wicked part of my personal culture. Some uh, 30 years ago now, not long before I started seminary, I served as a missionary to international students studying at American colleges. A Japanese student named Nahoko, not a Christian, was returning to the United States to visit her original host family in Los Angeles. But first she wanted to see Colorado where we lived. Uh, it's beautiful mountainous state and, and she asked to stay at our home for a week. So the Sunday after we had taken her to church with us, I had to stop for gas. And at the gas station, I got into a dreadful, loud argument with the gas station attendant right there in front of God and everybody. Let's just say that on the way home, no one in the car said a word. Everyone was just too embarrassed to talk. Here I was, a missionary to international students, and I just put on a horrible display of what a Christian is supposed to act like. I wasn't exactly fit for duty that day. When we got home, 
The Spirit of God whispered it in my ear and said, you really should apologize. To make sure that I didn't miss the message, he sent my wife to me to tell me, you really should apologize. <laughs> so I decided that if I had to apologize, I would make it a really complete apology. I finally came down to where everyone was seated at the table. But before I prayed, I apologized to everyone. I apologized to my wife for embarrassing her. I apologized to my children for setting a bad example. And then I looked at Nahoko and I apologized to her. And then we prayed. And I didn't feel better. Later that week, we were uh, driving back to church for a Friday night event, and when I had to stop at an auto parts store, one clerk at the counter was in a long discussion with a guy who wanted to part for a 67 Chrysler, and they talked for 10 minutes. <laughs> but I was determined not to let my impatience win again. When I came back to the car, I could see that Nahoko had been talking with Cindy in the car, and she had been crying, and crying a lot. I thought, it's probably about me. <laughs> and it was. But my wife told me later that night, no, John, you don't understand. Nahoko said she was not embarrassed. She was astonished. She said, a Japanese father would never apologize. <sighs> Sad thing is, I still didn't feel better. I had failed. Monday, we put Nahoko on the airplane to visit the Jenisons in Los Angeles, her original host family. When we got home, she had left us a, a thank you note. And it read, the Jenison family were the first ones to recognize me to Jesus. I love that. So I want to tell them first, but remember, I actually became a Christian here. If Pastor Shuji, the church that had sponsored this trip, call you after I leave, please tell him, Nahoko is shaking hands with God finally. Love, Nahoko Sato. Today, Nahoko is married to a Christian and has a family. They are, the only, they are among the only one or two percent of, Japan, of the Japanese population that profess faith in Christ. But the lesson for me was this. My personal sinfulness was not an obstacle to the work of God. He used it. Your personal sinfulness is not an obstacle to the work of God. As Martin Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. Well, <laughs> I fell into that one. Our personal sinfulness is not an obstacle, but he will humble us. He will humble me, he will humble you, that he may reshape us into the image of the culture of Christ for the purposes of quietly, steadily, inevitably 
building his kingdom on earth in the now, in anticipation of the not yet. The Apostle Peter wrote to encourage the church with these words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is my hope today that your faith has been strengthened by this broad overview of the victories that the culture of Christ has won over these hundreds of years of human history. But let us also be sobered by the dramatic extent to which the soul of every human being has been twisted by our sinfulness. You cannot escape its effects on the world at large or on your individual lives. But you can, you can choose to embrace the totality of God's plan for your life. You can decide not to pick and choose which parts of his calling you will embrace. As followers of Christ, you and I have had a change in citizenship, and now we are to spend our earthly lives both learning the culture of Christ and living out its goodness and grace and joy before a world that is captive to an earthly culture at war with heaven. If we truly grasp the blessing that has been gifted to us by a God who has proven himself to have all sovereign power and shown himself to be kind and merciful, even in the face of our inherent rebelliousness, who among us would choose to ignore his call to embrace this journey as the central joy and highest purpose of life itself. Let us embrace the mindset of the Apostle Paul when he writes, not that I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Lord God, may these aspirations, as Paul has described them, fill our hearts and enable us to boldly go forth unafraid of our sin unafraid of disappointing you, and instead looking to you to change and transform us into the image of Christ for his sake, for your glory, and for our good. This we pray in his holy name.